My question to you this morning is, why should you believe what Paul preached? Why should you believe the gospel that Paul preached? Well, this question is nearly as relevant today as it was when Paul explained it to the believers who were in Rome when he wrote the book of Romans. Put yourself in, in Paul's shoes for a minute. For 25 years, you've been traveling all over the known world through Asia Minor, which today is called uh, Turkey. You've preached the gospel. And after a long and rocky start, the work of evangelism and church planning had really found significant traction. And churches were springing up all over that part of the world. And so successful was Paul's spiritual labor at this time that Luke was able to record the following statement. He says, quote, All, all the residents in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How many of those who were in Asia? All who were in Asia. That is an amazing statement. I mean, it's an, an inc a pretty incredible statement when you think about it. And Paul didn't disagree. He made sweeping claims like this as well. For example, he said in Romans 15, 19, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Listen again. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Again, he says in chapter 15, verse 23, I no longer, listen to these words, I keep saying things like that because I know you tend to drift. I do too when I'm out there. So listen carefully, verse, chapter 15, verse 23. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Are you kidding me? I mean, I look around Fort Worth and all the people that we haven't reached yet, and you go downtown and try to share the gospel, and you find out some people say they never even heard of Jesus, and you've got no place to work, Paul? It's not exactly what he meant. His mission was a little different than what I just described. He was out to reach whole regions by proclaiming the gospel and planting churches that would proclaim the gospel and plant churches, and that was happening. I mean, talk about a successful ministry, and yet Paul was dissatisfied with the progress. He was convinced that there were still many people in the world who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to go where no man had gone before. He wanted to be the first to take the gospel to Spain. But in order to do that, he needed a new base of operations. The reason he needed a new base of operation is because he had always been based out of Antioch, which is just north of Israel, way in the east from where he would normally travel. If he's going to reach Spain, he's got to go way west, and Rome would be the perfect place. He needed a new base camp. He needed a new base of operation. He needed a, a new sending church. And so Paul sets his sights on the church that gathers in Rome. If your Bible is open to the epistle of Romans, you are holding in your hand Paul's personal letter of introduction to the church that he hoped he would soon be able to call his spiritual home. Now Paul knows 
that it would be unwise for him just to march right into that body of believers and, and require them to give, them give him financial help without first explaining to them who he is, as if they didn't know, and what he truly believes. The members of that church needed to have assurance that he was truly an apostle of Jesus Christ and that his gospel was orthodox and sound. After all, everyone knew about his past as the persecutor. For these and probably a boatload of other reasons, the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1 touch on five crucial issues about Paul and the message that he preaches, which he calls the gospel of God. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, although he does that elsewhere. But here he calls it the gospel of God. And so in rapid succession then, Paul briefs the saints in Rome on these five crucial issues, namely the messenger of the gospel, the messenger of God's gospel, we'll call it, the genesis of God's gospel, the history of God's gospel, the substance of God's gospel, and the mission of God's gospel. Now, before we begin drilling into this text, let's do what we always do. Let's stand together in honor of God's word, and we will read this text together. Romans chapter 1. Someday we will... Go all the way back to the day we recorded the beginning of Romans chapter 1 and say, I didn't have grandchildren when I started, but now I have great-grandchildren. <laughs> May your tribe increase. Okay. <laughs> Romans 1. I'm so excited about this, I can't wait to dive in. Okay, let's dive in. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which, is, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can be seated. May the Lord bless us because of the reading of his word. The first issue Paul is compelled to address as he writes this letter, he starts with himself. Who is this man who claims to be a messenger of God's gospel? Who is this man? Now, as we have just read, Paul's first words are designed to introduce himself. It's clear that he had never visited Rome before, so there were probably a significant number of people who did know him and a significant number of people who didn't know him. And so he's writing as if none of them know him. 
He's telling us who he is. That's why he's writing this letter, in part, to Rome. And so here's how Paul identifies himself. You could identify him as a great scholar, as a student of Gamaliel, as a, as a, as a former persecutor, and, and all, all kinds of things that would give him fame. No doubt, a lot of people knew his adventures, his stories, how he was stoned seemingly to death, and how just he would show up in a place and a riot would break out. And you know people sat around the fire and talked about that, either for good or for ill. But Paul didn't talk about any of that. Seeing visions, didn't, didn't talk about that. Here's what he says. You want to know who I am? My name is Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. You say, my, my text says bondservant. Um, there is no such word in the, in the Greek. It is doulos, slave, the slave of Jesus. I mean, from the start, Paul wants the Roman believers to know that he is not his own man. He is not building his own brand or establishing his own celebrity status. Rather, he is content to be a servant, a slave of the king, the master whose authority he willingly lives beneath. In addition to his status as a slave... Paul wants them to know that he is an apostle by calling. He is an apostle by calling. He writes, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, apostleship is not something that Paul conferred upon himself. In fact, he hadn't applied for the position. And truth be told, he didn't even want the position. I mean, at the time, he was trying to kill the apostles, not become one. Paul was not an apostle by ambition. He was an apostle by calling. And by calling, he doesn't mean by invitation. Jesus didn't invite Saul to think about becoming an apostle. No. Jesus didn't invite him to become an apostle. He confronted him. He threw him to the ground, as it were. He blinded him. And then he said in Acts 9.15, he, that is Saul of Tarsus, he is a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul didn't make himself an apostle. He didn't volunteer. He didn't accept an invitation. He was arrested. The manner in which he was called to apostleship was important. But the fact that he was called by Christ to apostleship would have put him on level ground with the other 11 apostles whom Jesus had called. And like the other apostles, he had been set apart for the gospel, which, as we have already noted, Paul refers to as the gospel of God. Why should you believe Paul's gospel? Well, first of all, you should believe it because God appointed Paul as a choice messenger to proclaim it. Second, Paul talks about the genesis of the gospel of God. The genesis of the gospel of God. At first blush, the term 
gospel of God may strike you as somewhat unfamiliar. I confess that was the case with me as well. I thought it was pretty cool, and I thought, I don't remember reading this anywhere else. And it's not that I hadn't read it anywhere else, it's just I couldn't remember reading it anywhere else. One thing about having a bad memory is, I mean, every word of God is fresh. <laughs> it's actually used seven times in the New Testament. It's used by Paul, by Mark, by Peter. And each time it means the gospel whose origin is God. Listen, God was not reluctant about this. He, he wasn't holding back when Jesus was coming up with this plan. Oh, no, 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 no. This was the gospel of God. It came from the Father to the Son, to the Spirit, and ultimately to us. You see, the gospel is not something Paul made up or that Jesus invented on his own. The gospel is an expression, listen carefully, the gospel is an expression of the very heart of God. Beloved, can I, can I just confront the idea that God somehow is hard on his people? If you belonged to the Catholic Church or belong to the Catholic Church, they would teach you that you can't go directly to God. In fact, you can't even go directly to Jesus. I mean, God is too harsh, and, and Jesus, you know, he's not as harsh as the Father, but he's, he's pretty hard to get to. And so if you want to approach Jesus, go through Mary. Mary will speak to him on your behalf because nobody can resist the will of their mother. And that's just wrong. That is not the heart of God. That is not the heart that birthed the gospel of God. The gospel is not something Paul invented or Jesus invented. It came from the heart of God. The reality is God established his gospel before the creation of the world. It wasn't a panicked response on his part to man's unexpected sin in the Garden of Eden. No, the God who knows all things and rules over all things and is sovereign over all things was fully aware of what was coming long before he created man. In fact, from the beginning, the intent, he intended to use the sinfulness of man to exalt the glory of his Son. This is what the crucifixion was really all about. This is what the gospel is really all about. It's about magnifying or setting on display the glory of God the Son. You remember from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, on the night before he was crucified, he lifted his eyes toward heaven. He was standing on the Mount of Olives in the dark with his men. They just finished the first Lord's Supper. And as they're walking toward the garden, he stops in the middle of the night and he looks up into the sky. The text actually says he, he looked to the sky and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. You understand what's happening? He's about to be crucified. That's how God will glorify his son. And this is the son asking for it. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. You get what he's saying? I'm going to die. I'm going back to my Father. It's time. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. G. Campbell Morgan observes, the deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. And so God is for the saving of sinners because the saving of sinners glorifies his Son. It magnifies his Son. Not like a magnifying glass that you look through that makes something that's very small look big, but more like a telescope that something that's really far away and really gigantic brings it into actual size. He's magnifying his Son. And so Paul taught Timothy... 1 Timothy 2.4, the Lord, that is God, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the heart of God. And Peter declared in, in his second epistle, God is patient towards sinners, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. Oh, my friend. God is no reluctant Savior. He wants sinners to be saved. He is glorified in their salvation. Therefore, he sends his apostles into the world to proclaim his gospel, which is justly named the gospel of God. You see, beloved, the gospel is not a man-made message. It finds its genesis its origin in the very heart of God. You know what the, the word gospel means? Well, oh, sure you do. Well, let me just break it down for you. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, and I won't have you say that back. It'll sound like we're <laughs> speaking in tongues. <laughs> U, E-U, means good. Like as in eulogy. If you have someone you love dies, people will stand up at the funeral and they will, have a, they will have prepared words that are designed to communicate good things about the person who has died. That, that's a eulogy. So you, E-U, means good. And then angelos or angelion, you, you kind of hear angel in angelos or it's not always angel, depending on the context, it could be messenger, one who is carrying or delivering a message. And you put these two together, and this is the good message. This is God's good news. This is good news from God. So when Paul speaks of the gospel of God, he's talking about good news that comes from God. Now, last week we learned a lot about the bad news Confronting sinners. That message was mostly about the judgment of God and the need for righteousness to, to avert that judgment. But this week, 
We're here to learn about the good news that finds its source in the very heart of God. Why should you believe God's gospel, Paul's gospel? You should believe it because it is the saving expression of the very heart of God. Now, if that's true, if that's true, and it is, that the gospel is the expression of the very heart of God, then we should find it everywhere in the book he gave us. I mean, if he's communicating everything from the very beginning, everything we need to know and hear, we should expect to find it everywhere. This is the expression of the very heart of God. And you know what? That's exactly what we find. And that brings us to Paul's third point, the history of God's gospel. The history of God's gospel. The first words of this letter have addressed the the messenger of God's gospel, the genesis of God's gospel, and now the history of God's gospel. Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of God, which, he continues, which he promised, what did he promise? The gospel, right? The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, if that means what it sounds like it means, we should be able to discover Old Testament promises about the Savior who was to come to reconcile sinners to God. And indeed, that's exactly what we find. In fact, the very first such promise was made before the man and his wife exited the garden. In Genesis 3.15, The prophet Moses, so this is promises and prophecies he talks about. Here's the prophet Moses, and he gives us what is known in theological circles as, see if you're familiar with this term, proto-euangelion. So you know what euangelion is, it's it's gospel. Proto means first, the first hint of the gospel, the first mention of the gospel And the first mention, you remember, after the serpent deceived Eve and God cursed the serpent, and he did other things there we're not going to talk about today, but he said this to the serpent, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, her children, specifically a son of hers. He, that's how we know it's a son, he will crush his head and you will crush his heel. In other words, serpent, Satan, one day, one day, one of your offspring is going to cause serious harm to this son of Eve who will be the Savior. And in in the process of saving sinners, He will crush your head. And that's what happened on the cross. The serpent bruised Jesus, the Messiah, when he was nailed to the cross. But Jesus crushed the devil's head, rendering him powerless to overcome the Lord and his people. 
Beloved, I don't know what kind of charismatic background you may or may not have, but there are a lot of charismatic churches and denominations that believe in the sovereignty of Satan. They believe God is sovereign, but somehow God has given much of his sovereignty over to the devil so that people are always afraid that the devil is going to come and kill their baby at night or, or cause them to have a car accident in which harm is done, and they're always just afraid of Satan. Listen, can I just tell you, God is sovereign. Jesus is king. He was not crushed by the cross. The cross crushed the evil one. The Old Testament teaches that this Savior will come into the world through Abraham, and by him all the world will be blessed. This is Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 14, he's called the Son of Man, to whom God the Father will one day give everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples will come and pay homage to him. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the son would be born, a son would be born, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Say it with me. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah. Everything the Father will do on earth, he will do through his Son. Other Old Testament prophets declared that he would be the, the son of King David, a descendant of David whose throne will be established forever. And as David was born in Bethlehem, so Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And you remember when the Magi came, the wise men came, and uh, where are we going to find a, a king? Surely we'll find him in Jerusalem. I mean, yes, Jerusalem. So they come and they talk to Herod and they say, where is this king? And he says, I don't know, call the scribes. And the scribes pull out the scrolls. And they dig through the word of God and they come back and say, well, the word of God says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And there he was. There he was. He was only 20 miles from them. And nobody among that group went to worship him except the Gentiles who came from afar. And so he was born in Bethlehem. And then in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, the prophet describes in exquisite detail how the Messiah was to die in the place of sinners. But then God would raise him up. And the list from the Old Testament goes on and on and on. If the gospel of God is the saving expression of the heart of God, we should expect to find it all over the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and that's exactly what we find. All of this was important to the early church because at first, when people started preaching this message, you think of Peter, James, and John, the other apostles, Stephen, who was killed for it. It just seemed like something new. It seemed like a new thing, a new sect, a new religion, but it wasn't new. The Jews had read these prophecies and promises for thousands of years, for millennia, 
It was all written down in the scriptures. At first blush, the, the disciples of our Lord were blind to it. But after the resurrection, you remember, Jesus appeared on the road leading to Emmaus, and he appeared to two grieving disciples because the Lord had just been crucified. And that very morning, he had risen from the dead on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, Sunday. And so they're walking along, and they're talking about their grief. They thought this was going to be the Messiah who would, who would banish Rome and, and be the conquering king. And they got it all wrong. And the disciples too did too. By the way, do you realize that's why Jesus kept saying, don't tell anyone. He would do something and he would say, don't tell anyone. He would tell his disciples, don't tell anyone. You heard my father speak out of heaven, don't tell anyone. Why? Because they didn't understand. They didn't understand what the scripture had predicted. They had a different idea of what the Messiah would, was. They didn't, Jesus didn't want them proclaiming a false Messiah. But after the resurrection, the scriptures became clear. And one of the starting places for us to know that is this. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus patiently hears all of their concerns about the Messiah and and how this Jesus, who we thought was him, and now he's dead, and he's been in the tomb for three days. And Jesus, full of compassion, says these words. You people are foolish. <laughs> Here's the way it's written. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It wasn't long before that all made sense. You know what? The disciples were always fearful. They were always bumbling. They were always faithless. After the resurrection, all of that changed. Do you know why it changed? It's because for the first time in their lives, they understood their Bible. They understood what Messiah was coming to do. And they couldn't help but preach it, even unto death. You see, my friends, Paul wants his readers to know that he is not advancing something new. All the precepts related to Messiah were written down in the Old Testament scriptures. And though at first blush it may have seemed new, the gospel of God was as old as scripture. It had been disclosed in the Old Testament promises and Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. The significance of this can hardly be overstated. Because these promises are written. You remember in my prayer at the beginning, I thank God for the book, right? Why'd you do that? Because it's so critical. This is so critical. The significance is this. Because these promises and prophecies are written down in Holy Scripture, they can be studied. They can be examined. They can be used to verify whether any messianic claim is true as it relates to being Messiah. We have a book. And Jesus was always saying to the Pharisees, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? 
And Paul, all the way through his, his apostles, keeps saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And so Paul, when he stood before King Agrippa to make his defense, by the way, just as a side note, when you read Stephen's sermon, Saul of Tarsus was there holding the coats while they're killing him. And he's preaching his sermon. He starts in the Old Testament. And we didn't get to hear the end of his sermon because he was killed. But you want to know what that, sound, that, that sermon sounded like? All you have to do is read chapter 26 of Acts because Paul never forgot what he heard. While he was killing him, he was hearing him. And when he became a follower of Christ, he knew what to say. And so here's what we read in Acts chapter 26. He's standing before Felix. He's on trial. There's a bunch of Jewish men who are there, you know, calling for his execution. He's giving his defense. And here's what he says. I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Almost every phrase of that statement would have been anathema to his accusers. All of this world would have been especially would have been affected by this. And it would have been especially important to the church of Rome. They needed to hear it because its membership would have been populated by a significant percentage of Jews. They needed to know that their scriptures had prophesied this one called Jesus. The history of the gospel is important as Parr will argue in Ephesians 2.19, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's he saying? It's not just what we say. It's what the Old Testament has always said. The reason so many Jews, such as Paul was a Jew, Peter was a Jew, Mark, Priscilla, Aquila, Barnabas, and so many, many more, the reason these young men and old, put their faith in Jesus Christ was because the claims of, the, of Messiahship were clearly supported by the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. And this is why when you read Paul's letters, you find him repeatedly saying, as I said, it is written. Read the Old Testament. It is written. It is written. Indeed, in Romans alone, he repeats this phrase 16 times. Why should you believe the gospel Paul preached? Well, because it is built upon the solid bedrock of the promises and prophecies of God. Paul's gospel is nothing less than the gospel of God. You can have confidence in it. And so Paul writes to the Romans about the messenger of God's gospel, the genesis of God's gospel, the history of of God's gospel, and next he writes about the substance of God's gospel. Here Paul tells us, verse 3, 
that what was promised and prophesied in Scripture about the gospel were things pertaining to his Son. Whose gospel is it? God's gospel. Whose Son is it? God's Son. He is the substance of the gospel. There, there is no good news for man about salvation apart from God's only Son. He is the sum and substance of the gospel of God. The question then is this. If Paul is promoting Jesus as the promised Messiah, what qualifies him for that position? Why not someone else? I mean, somebody else could have been born in Bethlehem as a son of David. I mean, that was his hometown. But here's what verses 3 and 4 say. Paul's answer. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what's he saying? Jesus Christ is Lord. You can have confidence in it because, number one, he was a son of David. Number two, son of God. He had to be both, and he was both. First, Jesus is the seed of David according to the flesh. That is, he is David's descendant. Again, this was extremely important because as we saw earlier, the Old Testament prophesied the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Anyone who reads the Gospel of Matthew, are you following me? Think about the Gospel of Matthew. Think about the very first page of the Gospel of Matthew. Anyone who reads the Gospel of Matthew for the first time must surely be perplexed as to why this Gospel begins with 17 verses of boring genealogy. The reason it's there is to answer this critical question, namely, was Jesus a descendant of David? The answer lies in the very first line of that chapter, Matthew 1, verse 1. Here's what Matthew writes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. You see, every Jew understood that this was a major qualification to be Messiah. Witness the occasion when Jesus asked the Pharisees in Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ, that's Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. Everybody understood. Messiah was the son of David. He was the son of the king. He was the descendant of the king. He would be the eternal king. In John 17, 42, we read, Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? In 2 Timothy 2, 8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Yeah, interesting. Risen from the dead, that's a big qualification. Son of David. And so Jesus meets one qualification to be Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the offspring of David. But secondly, Paul says this, Jesus is the son of God. We should note here that Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh. 
which means there's another way to think about Jesus. He is a, a descendant of David according to the flesh, according to his humanity. But in this qualification, Son of God, Paul is talking about Jesus according to not his humanity, but his deity. He is the Son of God. He's not 50% man and 50% God. He is 200%. He is 100% man, 100% God. You say, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> Hypostatic union? Here's what he means. Everything that man is essentially, Jesus is. Everything that God is essentially, Jesus is. He is the God-man. How do you know that he's the Son of God? Well, of course we know because uh, on two occasions, God spoke out of heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. And Paul doesn't appeal to that. Rather, Paul points to something more important. Jesus rose from the dead. If the wages of sin is death, and the only way Jesus could rescue sinner, sinners is to conquer death. And this he did in his resurrection. Paul says in verse 4 that Jesus was declared or destined, probably a better word, to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness, which is a Hebraic way of saying Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, before the resurrection, was Jesus coming in weakness. After resurrection, it is Jesus in power. So when he appears later, just before his ascension, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. His resurrection was the announcement that he is the Son of God in power. Who has the capacity to submit to death for three days and then rise again? Only the Son of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord, Paul says. He is the substance of the gospel of God. So why should you believe God's gospel? Because the Son of God himself is its very substance. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and through him alone. And so we've considered the messenger of God's gospel, the genesis of God's gospel, the history of God's gospel, the substance of God's gospel, and briefly and finally the mission of God's gospel. Paul writes in verses 5 and 6, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul now comes full circle and mentions his call to ministry of proclaiming the gospel of God. The we here in verse 5 is probably we apostles. It's part of what he's doing here is establishing that he's one of them. It's probably a reference to the other 11 apostles who walked with Jesus for three years and who also were proclaiming the gospel elsewhere? How do they engage in this world-changing ministry of gospel proclamation? They do it through Jesus. Through Jesus, they receive grace, 
which, which probably means they receive salvation, same as us, and apostleship, which we don't receive, to bring about the obedience of faith. This is the kind of genitive that causes me to believe that what he's saying here is it is um, the faith that bears the fruit of obedience, the obedience of faith. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. If you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and you suddenly have a passion to please the Lord. You want to please him because you believe him and because you're so overwhelmed by the fact that he loves you and he's done this for you. The word of God creates faith, and it bears the fruit of joyful obedience to God. If you are not an obedient Christian, you are not a Christian. Now, I understand that we all sin, and every sin is an act of disobedience. But if your life is characterized by disobedience to God, you should wonder whether you have the real thing. And beloved, do you see the missionary heart of God here? Paul and the other apostles are laboring with the gospel. They are unashamed of the gospel. They're preaching the gospel with the hope of reaching the world with the gospel for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. This means they are seeking to reach the Gentiles, the nations, with the gospel of God. And some of them had already been reached. And we're already a part of the church of Rome. Do you see what Paul calls them? These believers who were in Rome, some of them who were Gentiles, previously outcasts and enemies of God. This is how Paul refers to them now. Look at your Bible. Beloved by God. You are beloved by If you know Jesus, if he has arrested your heart, if you love him, if he is your savior, then you are beloved by God. He loves you. He loves you. They are beloved by God and called to be saints. That is, set apart to be the objects of his eternal attention and affection. You are set apart. What a marvelous way to begin this letter. But as we close, I wonder if you're wrestling with whether or not you should put all of your confidence, all of your hope in the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, I assure you, if you turn to him and surrender your life to him, you will never be disappointed. The gospel Paul preached is worthy of your trust because it is truly the gospel of God. You have heard it this morning. Do not harden your heart. Receive it. Rejoice in it. You will be born again. Father, we thank you for these words of yours that come from your book. And we are so grateful that you chose to have them written down so that we could read them, learn them, examine them. 
it's such a wonderful thing that if you have called some of us to spend every day of our lives studying this book so that we can share it with your people and others. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit in such a way that causes us to announce the gospel to everyone we know, to love them and look for every opportunity to speak to them about the gospel of God. Thank you, Father, for the opportunities you've given us most recently. I pray, Father, that some of those people would repent and believe. And Lord, that each of us would be found faithful in ministering the gospel of God to those we know. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus.